Well, when Springfield, Missouri found out I was going to West Monroe, you wouldn't believe what all they gave me. <laughs> oh. They definitely gave me this, and they gave me a duck call that's not really a duck call. It gives quotes from uh, the show, I guess. Let's see if I can give you one. That's uh, your very own Robertson's there. And my favorite one, I think, because, you know, I'd be used at moving some and, and uh, just nothing like having these faces staring at you everywhere you go. <laughs> now I can look like one of them. Oh. Hopefully it didn't shed on me. Okay. <laughs> Put this down. Before <laughs> I hurt myself. Okay. Uh, good to be with y'all this morning. It's, uh, it was truly one of the hardest things, I think, probably for Julie and I both, I could say it's one of the hardest things that we've done, uh, leaving friends in Springfield that had really become like family to us. Uh, but we also can remember a day when we showed up there without a friend, and God is faithful, and I know he's faithful here in Louisiana too, and we already have felt such a warm welcome from you guys, and uh, some fast friendships being formed, and we look forward to uh, spending time making a lot of incredible friends here too in West Monroe. Uh, you know, you guys don't all look like the Robertsons, and that something we'll have to fill Springfield in on sometime. <laughs> so love is patient, love is kind. Uh, probably we're all familiar with that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Whether you're a churchy person or someone who doesn't do the church thing much, we all go to weddings from time to time. And at weddings, you inevitably hear pieces of 1 Corinthians 13, don't we? Uh, it seems like that's just the, the wedding text these days. And uh, But believe it or not, if I can just let you in on a secret, it wasn't actually written for weddings. It works nicely there. In fact, I use them when I perform weddings. But it was originally written to and for a local church, not so different than ours. And that's uh, the context that I'd like to explore today. We're going to actually look at this chapter and explore what Christ-like love looks like uh, over the coming weeks. But, but to start off with today, I just wanted to kind of look at the, the historical context that, you know, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians, and particularly this chapter, uh, what the context was that he was speaking to, and to kind of see what his main point was with this chapter. And then in the weeks to come, we can kind of dive into more details about this kind of love. But to back up just a little bit, since the fall of humanity at the dawn of the ages, God has been trying to form a community that follows his way of life and his priorities. And uh, he tried you know, early on with 
accepting Abel's offering and rejecting Cain's. And he tried early on with, you know, cleaning things up with the flood, in a sense. He tried creating his very own nation through Abraham, a great man of faith. He tried giving that nation some guidelines, some rules to live by that would help them, you know, be set apart from the world. And he did that through Moses. But none of that really panned out, did it? And people, even in the nation of Israel, continued to fall into the patterns of this world. And so eventually, God sent his own son. And the son ushered in a new kingdom, vastly different than the kingdoms of this world. And its values and the things that were important in, in the son's kingdom were completely upside down from the things that were important in the world's kingdom. And even more shocking than what he taught us about that kingdom was his mission here on earth. As he died and was resurrected to reconcile us back to a right relationship with God. And last but not least, he sent his Holy Spirit to live in and among people who believed in him that to help us with that very thing that he's been trying to do all along, to form a community that would be a witness to who God is, a community that would be totally different than the world's community. And so, with that context in mind, here just a few years after Christ had been resurrected and had ascended to heaven, imagine the Apostle Paul's dismay when he received a bad report from a church about a church that he had planted or founded. Ah, oh, go back. The church was in Corinth. And uh, just to kind of give you a reference point, uh, up here in the top corner is Rome. Up there, that's Italy, modern-day Italy. Ah, over here are some other biblical cities you might be familiar with. Uh, Philippi, Thessalonica is over here. And way down here in modern-day Turkey and that kind of area is Ephesus. And right here with the arrow is Corinth. And it's at the kind of the bottom of Greece. And Paul had already gone there. He had established, founded this church, if you will. He had been uh, probably the first missionary there. Certainly one of the first. And the report he received was that quarrels and divisiveness had broken out in this church. They had slid back into old patterns of immorality. And there was lots of disagreement about who was most important and which spiritual gifts should be valued most, whose role in the church was most valuable, most important. And really all that boils down, doesn't it, to just worldly stuff, worldly patterns, things that the world values like power and success, recognition, certainly not the values of Christ's kingdom, which were more like humility and servanthood and sacrifice. And so Paul writes a scathing letter that we now call 1 Corinthians. And it's really, the tone as you read it, is often like a father to his children. 
with kind of a disciplinary tone. And he doesn't seek to mask his disappointment. He reminds them that it doesn't matter what teacher they claim to follow as long as they follow Christ first. He reminds them and reprimands them for falling back into those old patterns of living. Reminds them that they were saved from that. And finally, he comes to this issue of spiritual gifts, which really just boils down to, you know, my job's more important than your job, or, or my role in the church is more important than your role in the church. And he addresses this later on in, in this letter. And in the chapters that lead up to 1 Corinthians 13, he begins to reason with them, to give them some logical reasons and just some things that they maybe need to understand. And I love the illustration that he uses, and, and it's a familiar one to those of us who have been in the church a while because it just comes up from time to time. But he compares the church to a body, a human body. And he says, look, I mean, we all have, you've got a hand, you've got a nose, that you two very different things. But uh, at the same time, one's not necessarily more important than the other. I mean, you, we need them both, right? And so it is in the church. We're not all noses, we're not all hands. Thank goodness we're not all noses, because if we got a sinus infection like I had this week, we would be in trouble. Everything would shut down, I guess. But so it is with us. And the person, you know, that sometimes I guess we fall into the same patterns of thinking this person's more important or that person's job is more important, you know, and, and really. Uh, you know, a lot of times, I, I mean, when I grew up, the people on the stage, you know, they were, wow, those are important people in the church. But the people that grab microphones up here, or that sing in the choir, or that preach the sermons, it's not that they're more important. We just all have different jobs. We have different roles that we play. And that's what Paul was trying to explain to them. And he didn't stop there. And I think he realized that Knowledge and understanding and reasoning only take you so far. And ultimately, the church in Corinth needed a change of heart. They needed a shift fundamentally in values. And so we come to 1 Corinthians 13. And we come to love. And so with that context in mind, that context of wanting them to be completely different, a, a different sort of community that would shed light on what God desires things to look like. With that in mind, let's actually read 1 Corinthians 13. And you can find a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you, uh, or maybe you brought your own, or maybe you're fancy like me and can pull it up on your uh, mobile device of some kind. We'll be reading uh, through in the NIV, which is the version that's in the backs of your pews there. And I think it was page 1203 in most of them, if that's what you're looking in, can help you out. As you find that, I want to give everyone time to find it. Feel free to use your table of contents or whatever. But I uh, just want to say if you're a guest with us today, thanks for being here. And uh, this is, as they mentioned, my first Sunday here, first of many to come. And uh, we're excited to be here. We, uh, I'm used to, I'm not used to this at all, so I, 
I'm used on Sunday mornings. I usually have a guitar strapped on and I'm singing some songs. And so the preaching thing, I've done it before, but it's just not my every week routine. So uh, if you're <coughs> visiting today, I hope you'll come back a few times and see if I get any better at this thing. Go. Uh, hey, I meant to show you also. This is a picture of the ruins of the city of Corinth, just so you can kind of see. It has some nice scenery. Okay, let's read together. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul speaks into the midst of their clamoring to attain power, to control the direction of the church, to garner recognition for their spiritual gifts or their whatever uh, credit they hope to gain. And he tells them that without this counterintuitive Christ-like love, they're nothing. tells them that, you know, hey, you can have the most touted spiritual gift in the church, but if you don't pair that with Christ-like love, it's nothing. He explains that you can be the deepest spiritual person, maybe you just devoutly, maybe you spend all day reading your Bible and praying, and that's wonderful, but if you don't put that with Christ-like love, then it's worthless. Perhaps you can even work miracles, or you'd be one of those people, I love those people, who would just give you the shirt off their back if you needed it. And that is a very noble thing. But without Christ-like love, Paul says, it's not worth a thing. It reminds me of chocolate cake. <laughs> Sorry. 
good to be reminded of chocolate cake. But, yeah. uh, my grandfather, my papa, uh, loved desserts. And uh, Vivian Cootie, my aunt sis, uh, is his sister, and she can testify to that. I love desserts. And one time, my Mimi was sick and couldn't cook for him, and he decided he wanted a chocolate cake. So I'm sure she led him to the easiest recipe, and uh, he set about mixing all the ingredients together, you know, the, uh, the sugar, the cocoa, the eggs, the oil, the baking powder, baking soda, all that good stuff. Salt, milk, vanilla extract, you gotta have that. Water, even. And they mixed it all together and he put it in the pan, I believe it was a sheet cake if the story is correct in my head, and, and put it in the oven. And after a while he came to her and reported that it was boiling. <laughs> And she said, well, it is a little bit of a thin batter, so just give it a little while, I'm sure it'll firm up. And uh, when the time was fully accomplished and the cake was supposed to be ready, he reported it was still boiling. <laughs> and that's when she realized he had left out flour from the ingredient list. And that was the last attempt he ever made at baking a cake. <laughs> but that... You know, flower in that illustration. That's love in the Christian life. We can have lots of good ingredients. Some of them are even great on their own, like, you know, hey, cocoa, I'll take that any time. But without flour, the cake just boils. And without love, the nicest things we could come up with will still be worthless. Why is that so? There's probably a lot of reasons why that's so, but Paul just chose to focus on one. And it, his reasoning comes at the end of the chapter. And like I mentioned early on, we'll spend the next few weeks looking at that middle section that describes love, what Christ-like love is like. But uh, today, just getting his main point, we'll jump kind of to the end of that chapter and and he explains why everything is worthless without love. And his reason is heaven. He says that all the things that we tend to think are so important here and now, when we're on that side of things, when we're in God's presence, it will seem not so significant after all. The spiritual gifts that we value most now, whether preaching or teaching, even singing or praying, whatever the case, they won't be viewed the same way when we're in heaven. Those, I've got a feeling that those who uh, appear to us to be spiritually deep here will probably look about as deep as a puddle in the presence of God. Another story about my papa, when we were, uh, many years ago when I was a toddler, and that has become many years ago to me now, I'd say, I was probably three or four, and we were hiking in Colorado along a trail, and he was in front of me, and as he walked along, we came to a tree, 
and he just gave the tree a shove, and it fell over. Now, three or four years old, I am in awe. <laughs> Still am, really, but dumbfounded. My papa can push trees over. <laughs> well, as I got older, it was explained to me that the tree was dead, and it wasn't that large, and it was just waiting for someone to breathe on it before it fell over. You know? uh, of course, I still believed and was told to this day that if it had been alive and well, Papa wanted to push it over. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny how that goes with things when we're a kid. I mean, I'm sure you have things like that, too. When you look back on something that you thought was amazing, or, uh, you know, maybe it was a, a theme park you went to as a kid, and you go back and ride that same roller coaster, or, you know, whatever the case may be, and it just, it's not quite how you remember it, right? And Paul uses that illustration. He says, you know, when, when we're children, we reason in a childish way, and we see things from a child's perspective, but when we grow older, we see things from a different and more mature perspective. And he said, that's how it'll be in heaven. We'll get there, we'll have a more mature perspective, and some of the things that we made our eyes open really wide when we saw them or experienced them here, things in the church that we thought were so important, uh, that we got all worked up about, when we get there, it won't seem quite so significant. So he says, what will remain in the end? What is worth our pursuits here on earth if things won't seem so important there? What will be important there? And his answer is love. It's love that will endure and in fact be made perfect in that day. So what does this, what does it mean for us today? First, I, I think it means that we, every one of us, that call Christ our Savior, you know, part of the church, are left without excuse. Without excuse for inaction or lack of involvement in the mission of the church. Because you don't need any particular gift or ability. You don't need any particular job title to love people, do you? It's a choice that we make, to love or not to love. And each of us in our own different ways, with our own different personalities, we show love in different ways, but each of us know how to, and we are able to, regardless of our spot in the church, regardless of how young or how old we are, regardless of any of all that, how rich or how poor we love covers all of that. So we're left without excuse. And what's more, it means that we must not take this teaching for granted, and nor should we be surprised by it, because it is central to the Christian life. In fact, Jesus was once asked, they said, teacher, in fact, they were trying to trip him up at the time, of course, that never worked out very good for them, but they said, teacher, tell us what is the most important command out of all the hundreds of commands in Scripture? 
And Christ said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then, without even being prompted, he said, Oh, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest command, the one thing when Christ narrowed it all down for us, that he wanted to make sure that we got right, it comes down to love. So the Apostle Paul wasn't inventing anything new here when he told the church in Corinth to love one another. But even so, most people, and yes, even most Christ followers, still seem to underestimate the great value and importance of love. In fact, the only time that we seem to really get it is at the end of our days. Isn't it? And at the end of people's days, as the years wane, they sometimes have regrets. But seldom do you talk to anyone in that phase of life who regrets not making more money or securing their retirement a little more or, you know, the big regrets aren't, man, I should have climbed higher up the ladder or I should have worked longer hours or done more of this or that. It's relational. You say, man, I should have come home earlier instead of working all that overtime so I could have spent some time with my kids. Or they say, man, I shouldn't have let that one mistake destroy that friendship. I shouldn't have let substance abuse rob me of my family. Or I shouldn't have, I should have shown my wife more that I loved her. It's those kinds of things that eat us up at the end of our lives and yet during the midst of our lives, we don't seem to get it still, you know. But God's trying to get us to get it. And he's telling us through his word, through his Holy Spirit, in the end, it's relationships, it's love that matters the most, and it's love that will endure. In his church, we should be the ultimate model for that to the world. We should be the ones showing how that works. And finally, just a question to challenge us today. And that is, what motivates you the most to participate in the life of this church? What motivates you the most? Is it a desire to feel cared for? or a desire to care for others. It's not that, uh, and there may even be seasons in life where your greatest motive should be to feel cared for because you just need care in that season of life. And it's not that any of us should not desire to feel cared for. But my question is just, what motivates you the most? Now, I haven't known many of you very long, but I do know that you care for others. I can tell that by the way you've cared for me and Julie and Hadley already. And, and I know just by things like this afternoon's visit to the uh, nursing home where we'll sing, that uh, you know, caring for people who don't really expect you to 
care for them. And certainly the world doesn't expect anyone to care for those folks a lot of times, right? They get forgotten and put on the back burner so often. But the fact that you've made the point to care for those people demonstrates that you do and uh, that you are living as an example of Christ-like love, at least that way. Uh, speaking of that, just an aside, if you don't normally go to those things the, uh, because singing is not your thing or whatever, you know, and let the, the spiritually gifted in singing do that ministry, uh, I would just want to suggest to you, and maybe some of you already do this, I've never gone to one before, but just as important, maybe more important than the ministry of singing is just the ministry of presence, just being there with someone who's lonely. And so if you wanted to show up at 4 o'clock today too and just sit with someone who's maybe very lonely, it might mean as much or more than the Psalms do to them. So we invite you to come be a part of that ministry. But wouldn't it be incredible if our greatest characteristic as a church became the one takeaway that people consistently left with was, wow, those people really care about me. And they really care about each other. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because I, mean, I wrote it down because I wanted to say it right. I wanted you to be able to see it. I believe this is true. When we show people that we care, especially people who don't expect us to, we put the love of Christ on display for the world to see. Amen? When we show people we care, especially people who don't expect us to care at all, we put the love of Christ on display for the world. And that, friends, is a God-sized vision worth pursuing, worth praying for. And in fact, let's pray for it now. The musicians are going to come back up. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for never failing to challenge us to live Christ-like lives. Lord, help us. Lord, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and lives to become and continue to become bearers of your love. People who seek first to care for others. Lord, I pray that you would help us become here at Cypress Street Church of God people who take great pleasure in caring for one another and who are quick to care for those who don't expect us to care about them. So often you hear stories of people who stay away from churches because they, they just think that those people don't care about me. That's not the sort of place I belong. We just pray, Holy Spirit, draw them to this place and help us to show them that they couldn't be more wrong. That they are loved by you and therefore loved by your church. 
pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.